guys. I'm Joan. And I'm Ralph. And welcome back to Catch Me Up to Speed. If you listened to our first episode, you'll remember that we're a married couple, as well as two former journalists turned coffee farmers. And we teach you how to think critically about the news so you can be better informed, especially about topics that are manipulated by those who want to gain or keep power. And today's episode is a really good example of this. We are going to talk about the history of the black vote in America. Yes, this is a topic I've wanted to dig into for a while now. In every four years when the presidential election is on the voting ballot, we hear a lot about the black vote acting like a monolith. But this year, something is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. For the past 40 years or so, black voters have been known as the bedrock of the Democratic Party. Look at Joe Biden. He insisted on having a black woman as a running mate for a reason, right? Well, this election season is challenging that perception a bit. Earlier this month, hundreds of brown and black Trump supporters crowded on a White House lawn for a Blexit event. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Blexit, it's a campaign to pull black voters away from the Democratic Party. Just last week, two entertainers made political news. The Trump campaign tweeted out that Ice Cube had worked with them on the Platinum Plan, a two-page document of the administration's ideas to help black Americans. Now, Cube quickly pointed out that this did not mean he had endorsed the president. And in fact, he'd reached out to both Democrats and Republicans with policy ideas. Diddy, on the other hand, did endorse Joe Biden. But he also launched a black political party that welcomes both Republicans and Democrats in advancing policies that benefit black people. And as these events have come up, friends and family keep turning to Ralph to ask what's going on. So, Ralph, you're a black voter. What can you tell us? Because <laughs> we got both Cube and Diddy essentially saying that both Democrats and Republicans have got to step up. Yes, I'll, I'll put on my black voter hat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I've kind of seen this coming for a couple of years now. And, and when you look at history through presidential politics, you can see the truth of the matter. The black vote has never had a permanent home, not then and not now. And I want to highlight a few key periods when the black vote shifted in different ways. And the way to think about these shifts in the voting is to look at them similar to earthquakes. You know, there are tremors beneath the surface that you don't feel long before the shaking up on the surface occurs. But when the shaking reaches the surface, it's a hugely disruptive event. And I think the ground may start shaking again here very soon. In fact, maybe in the next four years of elections in this country. Hmm. So, guys, I hope you are all in comfortable seats and you got some snacks and drinks because Ralph is about to go deep on us. He's going to show us how racism, economic opportunities, and civil rights have all affected the black vote over time. And remember, one of our big goals with this podcast is to give you the historical context to understand the events of today. Yeah, and the messages that are in the media about the black vote today are why I think this is so important. There's a lot of money and there's a lot of media focused on the black vote for the 2020 election, but a lot of it is focused around changing sides just to change sides. You're Democrat, vote Republican. If you're black Republican, why do you do that? Vote Democrat. It's one or the other. I really want to show that this voting group has moved, and it's not for superficial reasons. 
It's usually based around economics and civil rights. And when you look back at the history, it's very clear when these moves happened and why. And that can give you the best sense of what moves may be on the horizon. So let's start with the party of Lincoln. You know, you guys ever hear Republicans refer to themselves in that way? What they're talking about is the Reconstruction Era, which abolished slavery and gave black people some civil rights for the first time in American history. Yeah, that's right. At the time of the Civil War, there were two main political parties. You had the Democrats, which was a party and is a party with roots that go back to Thomas Jefferson. But at that point in history was mainly defined by Andrew Jackson. Now, the Southern Democrats were dominated by big landowners, big slave owners. They were referred to as the planter class or the planter aristocracy. Northern Democrats were more loyal to the Union, but they had no appetite for emancipation or equal rights. The other party were the Republicans, still relatively new on the scene at that time, but they held power in the federal government thanks to the election of 1864, which saw Abraham Lincoln win a commanding victory at the polls. Now, by that following spring, spring of 1865, Congress had ratified the 13th Amendment to ban slavery. The Union had won the war. President Lincoln had been assassinated, and Reconstruction efforts were being overseen by the federal government, first by Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, and then later taken over by Congress. And there was Republicans in Congress, led by two men that I consider American heroes, Senator Charles Sumner and House Speaker Thaddeus Stevens, who fought the hardest for the enfranchisement of black men nationwide. Stevens and Sumner led a group of congressmen and senators known as the Radical Republicans, and this group spearheaded passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, 14th, of course, being about citizenship, the 15th Amendment about voting rights. They also helped pass the 1866 and 1875 Civil Rights Acts. All right, all right. So <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to stop you there. Really just to point out how intense this period was. Before the Civil War, Sumner had such a fiery anti-slavery stance that it almost got him killed on the Senate floor. In 1856, Congressman Preston Brooks headed over to the Senate and used his walking cane to beat the hell out of Sumner. And we'll talk about that more in a future episode about Reconstruction, but I just wanted to share that to set the scene a little, because that animosity was still in play during the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments. It really shows how much passion and anger and energy was around this whole topic oh, yeah. at that time. So the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, and that meant the 1872 presidential election was the first with fully guaranteed and mostly protected civil and voting rights. After those elections, more than 300 black state and federal legislators held office in the South, and these were almost all Republicans. This was also a high watermark for the Republican president, Ulysses Grant, who won a second term in this same election. But the momentum was already turning against the Reconstruction effort in the South. Ex-Confederates had rejoined the Democratic Party, and by 1873, they were fully committed to the use of propaganda, political maneuvering, and a lot of domestic terror to regain political and social power. This was known as the Redeemer Movement, and their ultimate goal was political control in the South. 
and that goal was achieved after the 1876 presidential election. The event that made this happen is known as the Compromise of 1877. So what happened is in, in the 1876 election, the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, and the Democrat, Samuel Tilden, they were locked in a very tight presidential election that was going to be decided in the House of Representatives. So the Southern Democrats made a deal with the Republican Party. We'll let you have the presidency in exchange for the end of Reconstruction. Republicans took the deal. Hayes entered the White House. Union troops left the South, and Reconstruction was over. Now, from that point, several Supreme Court decisions steadily stripped away the civil and voting rights of black Americans. And the Republican Party, due to divided government and shifting ideologies, turned more of a blind eye to the plight of black citizens in the South. By this time, abolitionists like Sumner and Stevens had passed on, and the newer Republican Party leaders were far more interested in manifest destiny and corporate growth. This is when the Gilded Age took hold. So guys, hopefully now you have a good sense of why black citizens reliably voted Republican during Reconstruction and how the end of Reconstruction was leading to a big shift. As you'll see in a minute, black voters are starting to realize they have no political home. Yeah, that's right. So I want to enter this second segment by reading a quote from a letter that Frederick Douglass wrote to a, a Republican Party operative named uh, Mr. Dalzell. He wrote this letter in 1883, so it was soon after there was a Supreme Court decision that struck down, essentially, the, the 1875 Civil Rights Act. It made it essentially inoperative. Douglas affirmed in this letter that he was an independent within the Republican Party and had this to say about black men who thought about voting for Democrats at that time. Here's his quote. Woe to the colored people of this country when the Republican Party shall triumph in spite of the treacherous votes of colored men. As bad as our condition now is, it would be worse then. We should neither have nor deserve the confidence of any party and would, to use a slang phrase, be out in the cold. This was a prophetic way to look at what was coming for black voters in America because the early 20th century proved to be an even worse atmosphere for black Republicans. By 1896, the party had full control of Congress and the White House for the first time in a generation, but racial equality before the law was no longer a major concern. William McKinley was too busy expanding U.S. empire to take serious the problems in the South. And Teddy Roosevelt after taking office in 1901 after McKinley was assassinated, invited a famous black leader, Booker T. Washington, for dinner at the White House with him and his family. And Roosevelt took so much flack for doing that that he never went near that topic the same way again. In fact, T.R. turned his back on black troops in the Brownsville affair. Um, you guys know that MLK Jr. quote that goes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The Brownsville affair is a perfect example of that. Yeah, so let me give you some background. On August 13th of 1906, there was a troop of black Buffalo soldiers stationed at an army base near Brownsville, Texas. It was uh, Fort Brown. So they were accused of involvement in a shooting in town that left one man dead and a second man wounded. 
Now, the unit's white commanders said that their soldiers were in the barracks at the time of the shooting, so they couldn't have done it. But the mayor of Brownsville and many white citizens of Brownsville said otherwise. And they produced spent shells from army rifles to support their statements that they thought the Buffalo soldiers were guilty. The investigators accepted this evidence despite signs of a framing of those soldiers. So what did Teddy Roosevelt do about all this? He dishonorably discharged the entire group, 167 infantrymen. And he did it right after the 1906 midterm election. This decision obviously was really poorly received in the black community. And to give you a sense of the history around it, it was reversed by the U.S. Army in 1972. And those soldiers' records were exonerated. At the time, it downright made black voters angry. And in 1908, when the presidential campaign came around, one of the newer young black leaders named W.E.B. Du Bois and his Niagara movement, along with other black leaders in the movement at the time, like William Monroe Trotter, they decided they were going to openly endorse the Democrat in the presidential race. That Democrat's name was William Jennings Bryant. That's kind of the first real crack in what had been the monolithic black Republican vote. Now understand, most black voters still were supporting the Republican candidate. That was William Howard Taft. In fact, Booker T. Washington remained steadfast to the Republican Party. He fought the Brownsville case through Teddy Roosevelt and the Republican Party all the way through the 1908 election. But the unwavering loyalty to the party of Lincoln, that was starting to soften. And it didn't get any better when Taft took office. Taft was Teddy Roosevelt's preferred successor, kind of his hand-picked successor. Taft was the first Republican presidential nominee to campaign openly in the South. And to get an idea of what he thought about black voters, check out this quote from some of his writings about black Americans back in 1906. Quote, When a class of persons is so ignorant and so subject to oppression and misleading that they are merely political children, not having the mental stature of manhood, then it can hardly be said that their voice in the government secures any benefit to them. Man, I'm shaking my damn head right now. So much for the party of Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. You know, remember the beginning of this episode when I said that voting shifts are like earthquake tremors? Well, after Taft, those tremors are starting to reach the ground level. 1912 comes along. That's the next presidential election. And a segment of the black voting community was again willing to consider another path. This is around the time of the first wave of the Great Migration, when lots of black people left the South for better jobs and more civil freedoms in the North and West. And when they arrived in these towns, they had expanded voting rights, unlike what they saw in the South. But black voters had not forgiven Teddy Roosevelt for the Brownsville incident, so they were not overly excited by his third-party presidential campaign. And by this point, they knew where Taft stood as well. So some of these black leaders again considered supporting the Democratic candidate, Woodrow Wilson. Now, Wilson was a Southerner and a Democrat, so there was skepticism. But these leaders thought his economic message might be better for black people. And he also said that black citizens, and this is a paraphrased quote here, could count upon me for absolute fair dealing for everything by which I could assist in advancing their interests of the race. 
So W.B. Dubois and his newly formed NAACP decided to openly support Wilson for president in 1912, and so did Trotter and some other black leaders. This turned out to be a really bad decision. <laughs> yep, really, really bad. Let me go over some of the lowlights for you. Wilson brought Jim Crow to the federal government, promoted the destructive lost cause myth, screened birth of a nation at the White House, and by so doing ignited the second version of the Ku Klux Klan, and he turned his back on race riots and violence that destroyed black communities nationwide. Now, I could go on about Woodrow Wilson, but you get the point. In case those of you listening don't know, the Jim Crow laws enforced racial segregation in the South. This meant that Ralph's dad, who grew up in New Orleans, was forced to drink out of colored people's water fountains and go to blacks-only beaches. As for Birth of a Nation, Ralph, can you describe this film and how it's linked to the lost cause? Yeah, I can do that. Let me start with the lost cause. Now, this is a revisionist history based on the Civil War and Reconstruction era. And the premise of the lost cause is this, that the cause of the South, the Confederacy, was a just and noble cause that was only defeated because of the Union's superior money, superior manpower, and industrial strength. It then cast Reconstruction as a scheme by Northerners seeking to exploit the South for financial gain and political power, and that the enfranchisement of black people was only a means to that end. See, for lost cause believers... This was all an error in judgment by supporters in both the North and the South that was put on full display when black men were given equal rights and allowed to hold political office. And this quote-unquote error was corrected when the South was redeemed after the end of Reconstruction. This whole ideology was started soon after the war by former Confederate officers and politicians like ex-Confederate President Jefferson Davis, and Jubal Early, who was a Confederate officer. But it really took hold nationwide at the turn of the century and going into World War I. This is when academics like William Dunning of Columbia University began to write the lost cause into official history books. And it also got into novels and plays and motion pictures. So one proponent of these was a man named Thomas Dixon Jr., who wrote several books about the lost cause the most famous being one called The Klansman in 1905. The Klansman was also made into a play, and a decade later was developed into the motion picture called The Birth of a Nation, which was directed by D.W. Griffith. That film caricatured black men of the Reconstruction era, and the actors, of course, playing black men were white men in blackface. And they made the men seem unintelligent, sexually aggressive toward white women, and portrayed history in a very inaccurate and damaging way. I mean, <laughs> Wilson screening this film at the White House must have really pissed off black people. Yeah, they, they, were, they were not happy. And it actually was the first film screened inside the White House back in 1915. And what's worse, it's still to this date one of the most popular films to ever be screened in America. In fact, it received three additional theatrical releases in 1924, 1931, and 1938. So the total made off the film was about $15 million. And in 2015, Time Magazine estimated that if you adjust for inflation, that number would be $1.8 billion, with a B, dollars, which would make it 
one of the top five all-time grossing films. Wow, man, that is just nuts. That's the kind of impact it had on American society for a generation, really. Hmm. So after the disaster of the Wilson presidency, black voters really had very little choice. They returned to the Republican Party. And in 1920, they had a decent candidate to back in Warren Harding, who actually went down to Birmingham, Alabama, and made a good speech on civil rights. But the Teapot Dome scandal ruined Harding's presidency, and he died two years into his term. It was all downhill from there. Calvin Coolidge was the next Republican president. He did very little in his term, as the rejuvenated Klan was gaining political power in several states at that time. Herbert Hoover not only tolerated segregationists, he openly worked with them. That support helped him win some southern states, including the state of Texas. So in less than 30 years, the Republican Party had moved from indifference to open hostility toward the black population. As Frederick Douglass had said back in 1883, the black vote was out in the cold. So Ralph, let's go back to your comparison of big shifts in the black vote to an earthquake. Mm -hmm. In this period you just described, it was really racism in both political parties that built up the tremors, right? Yes. And the Great Depression then unleashed a big earthquake of black voters switching to the Democratic Party. That, that's pretty much correct. The Democrat who ran in 1932 was, of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, the black vote didn't really shift overwhelmingly to Roosevelt in 1932, but by his re-election in 1936, the movement was quite evident. Roosevelt won 70% of the black vote in 1936. Now, black citizens gained economic victories during the New Deal era, which is why they shifted to the party in 1936. But they were still fighting against unchecked racism in housing, voting, and in basic civil rights. Lynchings continued to be a huge issue in the 1930s. Despite this, more black families were moving to the North and West as the second wave of the Great Migration took place and was ongoing. So access to voting increased and economic conditions slowly improved. And after World War II, with momentum for civil rights increasing once again, the opposition to those rights returned as well. FDR, he passed away in 1945, and his successor, Harry Truman, continued a very slow move forward on civil rights. Truman desegregated the Army in 1948, which caused Strom Thurmond to break with the Democratic Party and form an independent party that he called the Dixiecrats. And he won four southern states as a Dixiecrat in the 1948 election. But Truman won 77% of the black vote in 1948, which was a big key in his upset win over his challenger, Thomas Dewey. Republicans were not willing to let the vote go without a fight. And Republican Dwight Eisenhower's campaign fought for those votes. In fact, in 1956, in his re-election campaign, Eisenhower received 39% of the black vote, which was more than enough to boost his re-election. He won that easily. But Eisenhower, at the end of the day, was very cautious on civil rights. He was ambivalent in passage of a weak civil rights bill, and he dragged his feet on enforcement of the Brown versus Board of Education rule. Yes. You guys remember the Little Rock Nine from high school history class? In 1957, 
the governor of Arkansas ordered his state's National Guard to stop an all-white school in Little Rock from admitting nine black students. This went on for about three weeks, until Eisenhower federalized the National Guardsmen. Finally, the Arkansas governor backed off and allowed the Little Rock Nine to go to school. Yeah, and remember, this is two years after Martin Luther King Jr.'s Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama. So civil rights issues were coming to a head, and Eisenhower just didn't really seem to want to deal with it. So black people were not convinced that they needed to come back to the GOP en masse after his presidency. Mm -hmm. So, guys, as you're listening, we hope that you can see that the black vote has changed depending on which candidates are fighting for the basic rights of citizenship. And we really see this in the 1960s when JFK and LBJ's presidencies caused an even bigger shift towards the Democrats. In 1960, black voters were looking for someone who would truly back the now resurgent civil rights movement. They could either choose the Republican, Richard Nixon, or the Democrat, John F. Kennedy. And in October of that year, a pivotal event happened when Martin Luther King Jr. was imprisoned in Georgia. He was supporting a student-led sit-in at the Atlanta department store at the time. The students wanted the sit-in to occur before the election, in part to see what the candidates would do. This is on the heels of Eisenhower's eight years. They wanted to see where these guys really stood. Now, Reverend King was in jail, and he was seeking support. He'd had a stronger relationship with Nixon, but it was Kennedy who made calls to the governor of Georgia to seek King's release, and it was Kennedy who called his wife, Coretta Scott King, to offer support. Nixon didn't either. The gesture was noticed by the black community, and 70% of their vote went to Kennedy. And that was very important. Remember, the election before Democrats got about 60% of the vote. And Kennedy won this election by less than 150,000 votes total. So that shift made a big difference in in a very narrow win. But black voters were taking a chance. We're going to back the Democrat. And unlike Woodrow Wilson, this one turned out to be a good decision. Mm, A really, really good decision. Yeah. JFK's administration was more committed to protecting black students integrating schools of higher education, like Ole Miss in Alabama. They sent protection to Freedom Riders. They started affirmative action in the federal government. They introduced the Equal Employment Opportunity Laws. And they submitted the Comprehensive Civil Rights Bill in the summer of 1963. JFK's administration did more in three years for civil rights than Eisenhower did in eight. And guys, this is a period that black baby boomers remember really well. So these are the stories that Ralph grew up with because his parents are baby boomers and, you know, we're both Gen Xers. So these are also the stories that I heard from his family after we got married. And one that stands out in my mind is uh, a story from Ralph's mom. She was in her teens during the civil rights movement. Uh, living in New York, living in Brooklyn, actually. And she grew up in an apartment that had pictures of Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., and JFK on a wall. And Ralph, you told me that this actually is not uncommon. Yeah, I've heard stories like this. And, you know, building that black vote did cost JFK white support in the South, the traditional home of the Democratic Party, but it gained him, and it gained the Kennedy name, in fact, a lot of... uh, loyalty in the black community. In fact, 
Robert F. Kennedy, after leaving the Attorney General's office in 64, became the senator from New York before he ran for office in 68, ran for the presidency in 68. So he was the senator in New York while my mom was growing up in New York. And she remembers the excitement around the community when he came to speak. She remembers him doing programs to try to build up um, small business equity and, and local communities there. And the loyalty that not only he received, but the fact that he went to those communities and listened and learned and really cared about what happened there. There was a lot of affinity both ways mm, for yeah. the Kennedys there. And, uh, and guys, just so you know, I mean, the apple does not fall far from the tree. So you know how Ralph is dropping all this knowledge on you. Well, this is very similar to the way that his parents drop knowledge on us. Yeah, absolutely. When Lyndon Johnson assumed the presidency after JFK was assassinated, he and others helped the Civil Rights Bill become law. Now, they did have to pull out the voting rights section, which passed a year later. But in the meantime, the Republican candidate was conservative Senator Barry Goldwater, who was opposed to the Civil Rights Act. That was a big message, and that message was heard loud and clear. LBJ won over 90% of the black vote in 1964. This was really the next big seismic event when the black vote shifted overwhelmingly to the Democrats. And the reaction of the Southern white vote was already in motion as well. Alabama Governor George Wallace led a 60s version of the old Dixiecrats in 1964 when he ran a brief primary campaign against LBJ. And by 1968, Richard Nixon's Southern strategy solidified the movement of, of old Southern Democrats into the Republican Party. It should be noted that in 68, George Wallace ran as an independent and won several Southern states on his own. So Nixon didn't win him, but neither did Hubert Humphrey. Now, by 1980, Ronald Reagan launched his campaign at the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi. And in that speech that he gave there, he said he believed in states' rights. And these were key words that were noticed by black voters. I should briefly explain, explain the whole thing about states' rights. The states' rights issue is something that goes back to the founding of the Constitution in the sense where the states we're supposed to have certain amounts of power versus the federal government. Do you want to be more powerful, less powerful? You can get into Jefferson versus Hamilton and some of this stuff. But in a sense of North versus South from the Civil War era and onward, the South believed in having states' rights to determine the rights for its citizens, who can vote, who has rights in public accommodations, what have you. It is how they enforced Jim Crow laws, is the states having rights. This is why... The 1877 Compromise was so important to them. They wanted control of the South as a region more than they wanted the presidency itself. And that had always been a rallying cry up to and through the civil rights era. So when the word states' rights came out, black voters who understood the history knew exactly what that meant. Well, I mean, it's not just that. It's he said states' rights in Neshoba County. That's true. That's true. And then you, Neshoba County was infamous because it was the site of the 1964 murder of three civil rights workers during the Freedom Summer voting drives of 1964. That was made into a movie back in the late 80s called Mississippi Burning. So, you know, black voters got the message. And since 1980, no Republican has received more than 15% of the black vote. And just to pull that through to our 
most recent presidential election, which would be 2016, Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote in the 2016 election. Now, if you're Gen X, like Ralph and I are, or if you're a millennial or Gen Z, collectively speaking, our entire lives, the voting patterns have shown that black Americans vote majority Democratic. It's no surprise that there has been this decades-long narrative of the Democratic Party being the home for black voters. But now you guys know better, right? Um, so, Ralph, tell us how the Clinton and Obama years led to the dissatisfaction being voiced by Ice Cube and Diddy today. Well, I think it, it starts with a generation of policies like the 1994 crime bill and their anti-union policies, their trade policies, which affect the working class, which is filled with a lot of black and brown people. And the aftermath of the Great Recession of 2007 through 2009 all of that have led many black voters to become more disillusioned with the Democratic Party. Even popular Democrats, like the nation's first black president, Barack Obama, are not enough to hold off an increasingly restless younger generation that's seeking more fundamental changes. And of course, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And this has had devastating effects on black employment, black business ownership, and just black lives, period. You guys remember during the last presidential debate between Trump and Biden when Biden said that one in 1,000 black people have died from the coronavirus? Well, he was citing statistics from the APM Research Lab. And the lab's October update shows that the statistic is actually getting worse. Now, one out of every 920 black Americans have died of COVID-19. That's so distressing. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. That, that makes me angry every, every day. Right. Now, before you freak out, because we are less than two weeks from an election here, dissatisfaction with the Democrats does not mean the black vote is shifting to Republicans this November. One big reason? The old battles over basic civil rights are still ongoing. Let me give you a sense of what I mean. In 2013, the Supreme Court made a decision in the Holder versus Shelby County case that essentially defanged the 1965 Voting Rights Act by ending the preclearance portion of that act. And what preclearance means is there were certain states, particularly in the South, that had such egregious records about voting rights and access to voting that any changes in voting law that they wanted to make they had to have them pre-cleared by the Department of Justice before they could actually become law. And so this was always part of the Voting Rights Act, even in the 2000s. I think it was 2006 this act got renewed by Congress and by President George W. Bush. But in 2013, this was gutted. And immediately what happened is there was a renewed assault on voting rights, particularly in states in the South like North Carolina and Georgia and even Florida, where there's a big problem having former felons who've served their time be allowed to vote unless they pay off a prison fee, which people look at as something akin to a poll tax. So no one's really necessarily saying the Republicans are looking out for the black voter right now. But the disaffection across the board is real. And some of those early tremors could be seen in the 2016 election results, where black voter participation was lower than it was in the historic highs of 2008 and 2012. And this is where the discussion comes full circle. 
In September, the Trump campaign came out with what they called the Platinum Plan, which was billed as a $500 billion plan to increase capital in black communities. The plan also says it's going to designate the KKK as a terrorist organization, recognize Juneteenth as a national holiday, and make lynching a federal hate crime. So you can see how some people are looking to target the black voting base. Now, look, this plan's not going to work. One reason, well, it's already being tried and blocked, mostly by Republicans. For instance, there's already a bill in the Senate to make lynching a federal hate crime that's being held up by Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul. And the bill to make Juneteenth a national holiday was held up by Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. And frankly, I don't know that anyone really believes this is anything more than a quick publicity stunt to try to win a few points on Election Day. If Trump were really serious, he would have done this years ago when the economy was supposedly very strong. Right. I mean, let's think about this critically. Since late July, Congress has not passed anything to replace the $600 a week in federal funding that was attached to unemployment, right? Mm-hmm. And so now millions of people are out of jobs. They're struggling with food and rent or mortgages. And the Trump campaign says the president is going to work with Congress to pass a half a trillion dollar package next year just for black folks. Yeah, right. This is it's not going to happen, folks. I'm, I'm actually surprised they haven't called it the Black Platinum Reparations Plan endorsed by Ice Cube. Now, let me make sure Ice Cube did not endorse this and Ice Cube didn't endorse the Trump campaign either. But. You know, Cube's foray into the election discussion came on the heels of this event on the White House lawn earlier this month. And now we're fully back to where we started with the Blexit event. I don't want to take too much time talking about Blexit, but the short version is that it is a nonprofit organization dedicated to, and this is from their website, changing the narrative that surrounds America's minority communities with a particular focus on African-Americans. The name Blexit obviously harkens back to the Brexit movement in England from 2015 and 16 when England was looking to separate from the European Union, which, of course, they have done or are about to do. And in that style, Blexit is focusing their narrative on the Democratic Party. One of the co-founders, Candace Owens, has spoken about escaping what she calls the Democratic plantation. Now... Remember rule number three from our intro episode when we told you to follow the money? In that episode, we showed how nonprofits were helping funnel millions of dollars to pay for pundits and opinion pieces that support putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Well, Ralph is following Blexit's money, and it's starting to lead him down a similar path. Yeah, I'm trying to follow it as best I can. As of this episode, I can't tell exactly who's donating to the Blexit Foundation. They're a fairly new 501c3 nonprofit, so they're not required to disclose their donors. However, one of the co-founders, Owens again, she once worked for an organization called Turning Points USA, and she still does a YouTube podcast on PragerU. So Turning Points USA, which focuses on college recruitment of conservatives, has several links to conservative financial entities, including the Bradley Foundation and the Heritage Foundation. And PragerU, which does very well-packaged online ads and they do shows and YouTube shows, etc., they're also a nonprofit 
but they also have financial backing from conservative groups like the Bradley Foundation. That does not mean that Blixit Foundation is definitely getting their funding from the same sources, but I think you can make a fairly compelling argument that the financial backing probably comes from the same general collective somewhere. You know, Donald Trump loves to say that as president, he has done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. I think you can see from what we talked about earlier, this isn't true. And Trump is not going to get 20% of the overall black vote in November. Nowhere close. So this gambit is not going to work in this election. But as we've said all episode long, take heed for the small tremors beneath the surface right now. Because movements like Black Lives Matter are building a policy platform. And the stuff going on with Ice Cube and other leaders and celebrities making noise about forming a new political party. Well, members of the progressive left are also talking about forming a new political party. All of this is happening and all of these movements show renewed attention on the black American voting bloc. And I think that's because political operators can sense a possible future shift in voting trends. This November, I think turnout numbers and third-party votes for black voters will be areas to really watch. If they show big movement, it could be once again, as Douglas said long ago, the black voting population showing that they feel out in the cold, abandoned by Democrats for corporate interests, and unwelcome in the Republican Party because of economic and cultural voting interests. So there's real potential for an earthquake-like change, and where this will lead in the next two to three election cycles will be very telling about the emerging politics of the 21st century. And that is it for today's show. We'll be back after the election with the roundup of trends and shifts that we see, including the results of the black vote. And remember, we want to take your questions too, so be sure to drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, Hi, Ralph and Joan. Can you catch me up to speed on insert your favorite topic here? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you will find on more of your favorite platforms as we continue to post episodes. As always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.